You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here in our final week, all spoilers on the table, discussing oh my the mysterious case of the Alperton Angels by Janice Hallett. Herds. Flex. I <laughs> had such a fun time with this novel. Good. But we gotta get into the weeds on this. I, yeah, look, we need to get into some spoilers, we need to get into some... Some writing style discussion. Uh-huh. Uh, and in my opinion, what makes me want to come back to a good murder mystery. Yeah, I mean, this, this novel is in many respects true to the classic form of the murder mystery, wherein mm. the last third of the book is just explanation. Look, I remember, you know, the first Sherlock Holmes book where literally the second half of the book is a flashback to explain everything. Yep. The problem as I see it, the reason why I, I feel like this novel didn't quite grab me is one, we're not back in the, you know, the 1500s uh-huh, or whatever uh-huh. Sherlock Holmes was, was invented, but also this book explains the story to you through the divine script, yes. which the big, the big reveal is that the divine script isn't actually a script. Like it's, it's literally what happened. Well, it, it is a script of what happened, but it was th- a character who was there trying to deal with their emotions by writing it out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Look, it is technically a script, but like for our purposes, yeah. it is a script of the it truth. It is metatextual. Um, and so we have that explanation, which is, which is great. But then we also have Amanda's notes. Uh-huh. And you then have Amanda's actual explanation where she tells I want to say Don yes. that she knows everything and explains what she's extrapolated from from Holly's writing, and then tells Connor that she knows everything, and yes. that Connor has just heard from Don what she's just told Don. Yes, and also Ellie Cooper then has to explain what happens to Amanda, and so there's an awful lot of explaining going on to the point that by the end of the book, there is no loose thread to really keep you there. But Ben, Uh, Ben, who killed Amanda? Was it Oliver or was it the special forces? It was, it was clearly the special forces guy. That's the thing. Every answer in this book, bar one mystery, I think can be explained with it was special forces, which it's just like, (laughs) on the one hand, the novel sets it up and I am satisfied by that answer. It's, it is a satisfying answer. It's very tidy, but it does make it a bit of a mess (laughs) to go back through on a reread. And you're like, Mm. Oh, I wonder what it's special force. Oh, I wonder like everything comes back. And, and this, this is actually quite clever in a way because we, we do get told explicitly. We talked about this last week on the show that there's a point in the book where they say, well, as long as you focus on the social care stuff, the demon stuff, or the you know the cop stuff, you know uh-huh. all this stuff that surrounds the special forces. We don't care what you do, and that tells us that that stuff doesn't yeah. matter. At least it doesn't matter to the core mystery. It's really interesting going back to what you were saying in one of the previous episodes, heard about yes people's complaints about this book being that they didn't know what they were meant to be solving. Whereas to me, I felt the problem was quite the opposite in that it was so obvious what I was meant to be solving that when I got to the end, I was like, yeah, I know. Why are you telling me? <laughs> Why are you, are you explaining this to me <laughs> in such detail? Yeah. I, I also think that um, obviously we, we talk a lot about on the show the the value of a second read through because you know what's going on. So you can see all the foreshadowing and all the clues and things. But as I've, I'm kind of hammering on it, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling a Janice Hallett, uh, it explains itself so thoroughly. I don't feel like I need to do a second read through. I feel like every 
shred of intrigue has been pulled well, uh, appropriately. In- like- interestingly, one of the devices that the book uses is that a lot of our explanations, as you were saying, are going back to the sort of events as they happened. Mm. And now because you are seeing the events rather than people's recalling of the events, like all of the things that well, were foreshadowing are in there. We get to see the line from Holly saying, oh no, she's part of the dark forces. She's the dark forces. Which if you were to, to reread all, the book without yep. that recap scene being there, you'd be like, oh right, she didn't, she wasn't being racist or talking about evil people. She literally meant like this, the subterfuge special dark underground forces. Yeah. But because it's in that recap scene, the reread is different. I, I've said that special forces can can explain most of the mysteries here, but I actually really enjoy uh, one of the like final twists that we have is that there are four missing pages. Yes, um, from the divine script. But it it turns out that uh, Harbinger Singh wasn't killed by the special forces or the the angels, like the criminal angels. Well. I mean, don't worry. He was, he we, was we, killed I, by. I understand yeah. your wording, even if it is in the strictest sense incorrect. <laughs> it is, look, they are made criminal by their actions. Uh, Holly and Jonah are actually the ones that killed Harpen to sing. My favorite kind of aspect of the the question that we're left with at the end of the novel of like, do we want to expose everything, or do we want to leave it behind? Is is not about how Gabriel will stay behind bars or not, which is kind of what the novel focuses on. I actually didn't really care about Gabriel by the end, but maybe that's just me. Well, I think that's kind of the idea is that you sort of realize that he is in many of the mechanisms of the genre, sort of an irrelevant character. Mm. Like he is a framing device for everything else that goes on. And he is a terrible, cruel, horrible person of a framing device. For sure. He's a, he's a spider. Oh, get him. But he hasn't really done no. anything. No, no. Well, yeah, that, I mean, he did kidnap a baby, uh, but, you know, th- that is kind of the the crux that, that uh, Janice puts his character on, that he has not murdered anybody. He is not the murderer in a murder mystery, but he is obviously a worse villain than anybody else in the story. Well, yeah, I mean, when the entire thing, and especially Amanda's portrayal as a character, as this just no holds barred, get the truth by any means necessary journalist, mm. is that- you're sort of left with this question that pays off Amanda's characterization in that if the truth comes out, these like subjectively unworthy recipients of punishment will be punished in that Holly and Jonah did indeed do those actions, but it was kind of by the coercion of Gabriel. And I think it's honestly quite clever that the novel makes you care less and less and less about Gabriel, because then when you get to that thought of, oh, Holly and Jonah are the ones that actually like committed crimes that had a lasting effect, that Gabriel is then out of the picture. It is really you asking how you feel about Holly and Jonah. I I definitely felt like there were attempts towards the end of the book to kind of bring Gabriel back and give him more of a focus than I think he deserves, but- yeah, I, I definitely think that the portrayal of of innocence and the way that their lives can be fractured and, and changed by traumatic events is definitely the the stronger portion of the story. Yeah, and, and I want to come back to the point that we were making about the reread being very different in this book in that the thing that the reread is good for in this book and why I would still recommend doing it if it's something that you enjoy with mystery books 
it allows you the breathing room to look back and think more critically about the context in a really interesting way where you get to look back and think like, oh, I see how Amanda parallels this failing of the social care system or this failing of understanding how to communicate with people, right? There are there are tidy parallels that don't necessarily provide answers for the mystery, but they do still have other value if you want to go back and look for them. It is fun to go back through and look at the... Uh the emails from Paul Cole. Oh yeah, and look at and look at Amanda's conversations both before and after those emails because often they run one into the other. Mm-hmm. And so you know, Paul Cole will say, "Wow, you should really start listening to some music." And then the next scene, Oliver says, "Hey, Amanda, know any good music?" And Amanda's like, "Oh yeah, there's this this one track I've been listening uh-huh. to, and it's it's like the Hail Satan track." Like uh, while while we're talking about very funny things, can I just say, "Oh no, I really enjoyed that Janice Hallett went for the same bad joke answer for who the baby is as I did at the end of week I know, one." I know, I know. Oh. I look, I I enjoyed playing along with that too. I was like, "Yeah, sure." Your, your like reaction, like, you and I can read each other pretty well. <laughs> your reaction after I said the clone of Queen Elizabeth made no sense to me because I was like, he he feels like I've cordoned on to something, but there's no way that my bad joke answer appears in the story. Yeah. And yet it does. I Yeah. I thought it was very funny. I was like, yeah, sure. Any Christ would go up to upper echelons of society. That seems like, uh-huh. it seems like a funny that thing that might so, happen. So satisfying. Yeah. I cannot tell you. I'm, Anyhow, I'm glad you enjoyed that. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing the mysterious case of the Alpton Angels by Janice Hallett all the way to the end. Spoilers are in the house. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We're joined today by Janice Hallett, former journalist and British government speechwriter, screenwriter, author of The Appeal, The Twyford Code, and most recently, our current feature novel, The Mysterious Case of the Alperton Angels. Janice, welcome to Death of the Reader. It's wonderful to have you. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me on. So mystery novels are founded on questions, and I wanted to start where Alperton Angels does, posing the ominous question of what would you do with this box? When did that question get put into the story and why did you think it was so important to open with? It was put in really, really early because my first two novels both have this structure where there's some characters investigating the story via documents. And for this novel, I kind of wanted the reader to be that investigator. So that that question was there very, very early because I wanted the the investigator to to, to be us as we read. So that was uh, a really important part of this book um, as opposed to the first two. And I wanted to having, I wanted to put into practice what I'd learned writing those first two novels with this one. So hopefully that's uh, that will come across. Yeah. I mean, how do you think the readers respond to these sort of blatant questions when often the, the game in modern mysteries is to bury the intent so deep in obfuscation that half your reviews seem to miss the point entirely. Um, I, I'm fine with with how people read the book. Totally fine. Um, you know, I, I do hide and bury my clues, but that's that, that's my job. And um, I, I'm, I'm always quite um, intrigued when readers do get um, something quite early, because I think that's that's someone who reads a lot of crime, who perhaps looks at the world a little bit differently to other people and they can spot things that I've put in 
and um, other people don't. I love um, Twitter when people post as they read and I can see where they're going wrong or where they're going right in the investigation. Yeah, I, I also think it's so impressive that you've managed to get like different stories out of the style because um, there are plenty of people who have like an idea for what they think would fit into that space and the way that you've like looked at one book and said, here's what I didn't address in this one, let's add it on to the other one. And the way that Alperton is sort of a response to both of the previous two is, as you say, like a very dynamic approach to responding to your own writing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a journey. I think the creative process is entirely a journey and that applies to each individual book and to one's writing career. I think it's very interesting if you read uh, an author's books backwards start with their most current one and then go back reverse chronology and see how they developed. You could do it the other way, but I think it's more interesting to read backwards and to see where they've come. Or, or you just confuse yourself catastrophically by reading a series <laughs> in reverse order and suddenly <laughs> suddenly oh, yeah, you're like, hang a on series. a minute, I, 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 what do you mean this is a twist? <laughs> I knew this already. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Oh, yeah. Maybe it doesn't apply so much with a series, mm. but uh, it's standalone <laughs> yeah. books for sure, for sure. <laughs> now, we, we mentioned uh, Ellie Cooper's notes a bit earlier and how they're the, the closest thing that we get uh, to objectivity in the narrative. Why did you feel that it's important to include her as a sort of anchor for the reader? Yeah, she's our moral compass, really, because the, the main characters in the Alberton Angels don't really have a, a moral compass, or if they do, it's buried very deep. So Ellie is our eyes and ears, really, and she says what we think. A little bit like Femi and Charlotte in The Appeal, who kind of guide us through the material. But the difference is Ellie is, she sneaks up on us because she only appears um, very briefly early on in the novel, and she becomes more prominent as uh, events escalate and she makes more comments and takes more of an active role. So, um, yeah, she's she's one of my favourite characters in it because she has this um, wry objectivity that we may have as the reader. And I think she, she turned into being a more important character than I realised she would be. When I was writing, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll come back to the moral compass idea a bit later because we have a we have a hot take to make there. <laughs> but I wanted to take this moment to touch on Amanda, as you say, like she doesn't have a moral compass in the same way. But also talking about how this book is a response to your previous two novels, the appeal was more of an ensemble, the Twyford Code was more of a personal quest, and then this novel sort of boils that down into Amanda, both having a core cast that she's working with, but it's still being a personal quest. What do you think attracts so many fiction writers to writing about true crime authors that get too close to their own story? Well, we've got quite a lot of real life examples of that. And it, it is fascinating. I think all writers are fascinated by other writers' journeys. And when that journey has been devastating or difficult or resulted in some unexpected outcomes, that's more fascinating again. I mean, I was very much inspired by I'll Be Gone in the Dark. That's Michelle McNamara. Um, Truman Capote's in Cold Blood as well. Not quite such a, a devastating outcome, but still uh, that affected him very badly. And I had those two very much in mind while writing this. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly fascinated by other writers and how they deal with the whole process. Now, it's interesting you were too how Ellie is kind of your maybe your favorite character, but maybe my favorite character in this story is, is Oliver uh, and his slow but sure descent into madness. He starts out at least in appearance, I think, as a, almost a more human alternative to Amanda's journalistic efficiency, but he evolves grotesquely and kind of reveals his darker side. 
Um, what's the fun for you in writing a moral signpost of a character sinking deeper and deeper into the mud? I think he represents the vulnerability we all have in, in to be wrapped up in something that we would otherwise rationally consider to be um, beneath us. Because Oliver doesn't think, um, well, he's very sure of his own uh, rationality, his intelligence, his education. He's very sure of himself and that he would never become admired in the kind of beliefs that uh, the Alberton Angels had. And yet, you know, he has got to. That very powerful ideology sinks him beneath it gradually because he he is vulnerable. So he's a sobering case, I think, for the reader. And I hope we all see ourselves in him, as we may see ourselves in, in some of the other characters. But he is that vulnerability that we all have. Yeah, I think at this point, I want to jump into spoilers um, yeah, because we have a lot of questions <laughs> about the deeper ideas of the book and herds. I know uh, while we're talking about the kind of religious tones of the novels, you wanted to ask about Gabriel. Yeah, I definitely do. Mm -hmm. Gabriel is a, a fascinating character. He's at the center of the depravity of the book, but somehow he seems to keep his hands clean. He's a character of this sort of juxtaposition here. It's very clear that he is speaking religious lies about the nature of the cult and its purpose, but we notice that everything else that he says about the the concrete facts of the mystery, we can take as a, a tentative fact. How have you managed to get away with uh, an obvious suspect blatantly telling us the truth? He's really fascinating and he was amazing to write, but he was really tricky to write because something like the charisma of a cult leader like him is really hard to get across on the page and it, it's hard to get across on the screen as well. And partly my inspiration while I was writing this I don't know if you've seen things about Nixium and Keith Ranieri. Fairly recent cult, and he, he's currently, to cut a long story short, he's currently serving 120 years. Why did people follow him and these young, intelligent, educated people, you know, hanging on his every word? And there's several documentaries, podcasts, and books about it now. And if you, it, well, he's unusual in that he was filmed. You know, there's not many cult leaders that were filmed talking to their followers, but he was. And it's extraordinary how that charisma doesn't come across on the screen. I mean, we can see him as he is, uh, and yet you can also see people following him and you know taking what he says as absolute gospel. He he knows what you need to hear, and he knows what we all need to hear because it's about what he says cuts through to the fundaments of human existence. You know, the life and death, and what happens afterwards, and why we're here. What happened before, and it's what most religions play on. And it's what Gabriel plays on too. Um, so we all need to be aware of it. Now, on the mystery side of things, uh, some of the most famous mystery novels throughout history have a monolithic answer. You know, the great big twist that sweeps everything out from underneath it. Um, and everything boils down to one simple trick. What compelled you to blow the doors on this tradition clean open by having the the special forces did it as your monolith? I don't know. Why? Why is that? Um I suppose it evolved like everything else in, in the novel, but it, I also wanted this. I mean, all the time we're reading the book, people are talking about the higher powers, um, as in, you know, God, as in the universe or whatever, however you um, think about it. But actually, those higher powers are on earth and they're, you know, they're very human and they're, you know, wearing, you know, all in one black outfits and they have guns. That's how, that's the higher power you've got to be afraid of. Um, not anything that's, you know, as it, a part of a human thought process or something that humans have made up. 
um, they're very real. So I guess that's that's where I, I bring it down to earth. I think I, I think that that has slotted into place something that I was struggling with with this novel until this very moment where it's like, yes, the special forces are analogous to God in this story. <laughs> and I love having that as just finally summarized in my brain. That's so good. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah, nobody had an overriding plan to create this um, secret that would be going on for 18 years later. And, and what little plan so. they had fell apart quite yes. quickly. Shouts <laughs> yeah. are getting shot yeah, in the absolutely. head. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And, well, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Mm, indeed. What a fantastic point to wrap up on. Janice, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. Alpton Angels has been a fantastic read on the show and it has been amazing to get to pick your brain about it. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've loved wittering on about it. And, um, well, I hope anyone who hasn't read it yet enjoys it when they read it. We will have links up on the podcast, as always, to find out more about the book and perhaps get yourself a copy. We would indeed highly recommend it. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. We're talking The Mysterious Case of the Alberton Angels by Janice Hallett, and we'll be back with more in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Hertz here for your murder mystery world tour. We are discussing Janice Hallett's mysterious case of the Alperton Angels all the way to the end. All spoilers. And Hertz, one of the Mm. interesting challenges that we have for ourselves in this mystery dissection here is that, as we discussed in the first part, most of the last part of this book is is just the mystery it is so so what else do we have to debrief on i mean we we touched on most of the the little bits and pieces the big twist about who killed harpenter singh is pretty cool she, if you figured out pretty much everything else i i could withhold a point for for missing the actual physical murder in this novel mm-hmm. of of singh but i would i think, that I would think be you cruel. should give me two points you think i should as i said last book wow. with everyone in my family's killed someone i want to be harsher this year okay you know what you're getting two points then. I'm a cruel and unusual mistress. I, I appreciate your emotional support by suggesting I should get three points, but I want to be harsh. I was going to make you fight for it, but it sounds like you just want to give up that third point, which I'm entirely happy to withhold. No, I, I This is this is going to be a hard-fought year. Oh, that worries me. I want me. my victories earned. Good. I like my victories easy, so maybe you do the opposite to me, <laughs> uh, and then we can just all walk away with... Some somewhat equal number of points. You know what, that, sound, that sounds like a terrible idea to me. <laughs> I guess the thing that I did want to talk about with this mystery is that I think that this mystery is very fair. There's one detail, one detail that I really was disappointed in. Which detail? And that's the bullet wounds. The bullet wounds, oh yeah, which I never mentioned. <laughs> Not once could I find a mention of them. Yeah. I, if someone can, please... Let me know, because it would make me very happy to be wrong about this. Mm. But I really would have liked the entire reveal of there being a sniper on the scene to be something that you could get ahead of, because I think that would have been a a great moment of victory over the text. A crack of thunder or something would have been, or maybe a wine bottle being popped open, you know, (laughs) some some of the classic telltale signs. No, I I mean, I agree. I think that... um, because what we're, we're told about the scene is that they'd slash their own throats and they were all definitely dead. But apparently not only did the uh, f- the forensic man on the scene not notice the bullet wounds, but Gabriel survived a shot to the head, which, I mean, there's some discussion about that in the acknowledgement section. 
the genus consulted yeah. with the appropriate experts to, to come up with that plot detail. And I think that it's like surviving a shot to the head as Gabriel does is unlikely, but, but it like makes sense for his character. Yeah. The whole point is that he's like a miracle worker, even though he knows that he isn't. Yes. Yes. One of my favorite tropes, and we, I've talked about this many times when solving mysteries, is that there are some characters that they just, they tell you something and, you know, it's a murder mystery. You're supposed to doubt everything you hear, but there are some characters that you go, that's a truth detector character. That is a character that cannot lie, or if they are lying, it's like in a very yes. specific yes. tricksy way. And I went, Gabriel is a truth teller as far as the mystery goes. That's so interesting. Yeah, because he lies about literally everything else. That's such a cool idea. Everything else is so outrageous. So as soon as I saw that character, I went, well, I can trust everything that he says about like what literally happened because he wouldn't want to stretch yeah. his, his lie, right? I mean, in hindsight, what a, what a genius application yeah. of that trope. I, I think that he's, despite, as I mentioned before, I think he kind of fades out. He, he, he disappears from my brain, but I, I do really enjoy him as a character. I would love to see more of, of him doing awful things, <laughs> you know? It's like existing. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing that was really interesting about the mystery and is definitely the inverse of the bullets thing is that so many of the clues in this book relied on you mm. just being at constant vigilance for Chekhov stepping out from any corner with a pistol at any moment. Yeah, the dark forces popping out. Yeah. Like a lot of the clues in this book <laughs> really rely on their initial mentioning. Like, for example, the bit where Oliver starts having these conniptions and it turns out that it's because of his inability to cope with caffeine. I, I definitely hadn't sweated that. I need to be real with you. And another example, Connor is mentioned in the first chapter as like, you should check, you should have a chat with Connor, Connor about journalism. Yeah. And then they have a chat with Connor and then he doesn't appear again. I'm, I've looked up Connor in the ebook. He doesn't appear again until He's announced to be the baby, being, right? He's met. Yeah. Until he is the baby. He, he only appears for that one moment. Blink if you miss it. And then he is the baby. But, but it, it's such an interesting application of clues because if you aren't razor focused on every outlier line and asking yourself constantly that question of why is this being mentioned, then so many of the clues could sail by as atmospheric descriptions that other books would just leave in. And there is a very golden age ruthless efficiency to that, but it doesn't lend the same credibility that I think a lot more modern mysteries are very good at creating. So often you'll get clues and realize you already have the answers because they were shown to you earlier in the story. And there is plenty of that that happens, especially with Mark Dunning's script especially with Jess Adesina's script. Well, it's, it's consistent, I think, is, is like the interesting thing to me. that it's, it's not like, you know, whenever we open up the big orange box, it hands us a clue. It's at the end of pretty much every chapter. We get, we get these three fictional accounts, um, and then we get um, Amanda's attempt to write her first chapter. And obviously each of her chapters is wildly different because she's just trying to write the same chapter over and over again. Yes. It's very Sisyphusian. Uh, Sisyphenian. I couldn't tell you, sounds, but she right sure is rolling that boulder. She surely is rolling a boulder all the way up to the orchard. But yeah, we, we have these other accounts of, you know, what's going on. And each one, uh, are all written to be very totally different, obviously reflect the same truth. 
and tread different ground. Yeah, and I, I do want to be clear by my criticism here. There definitely are things like the special forces is obviously drip fed to you a bunch through the phone calls that Oliver is getting, mm. the information through those other texts, the details that we get from Grey Graham and the mystery club who keep writing to Amanda all do build on these pieces of information. But it's interesting how the balance of clues feels in that so many of the biggest hitters, so many of the clues that are like the surprise twist ending mm. are laid so thin. Yeah, I, I guess the question is around fairness because when we talk about fairness on this show and in, in terms of these these murder mystery books, like obviously there's always rules and things we can refer back to. And I'm sure that this book, you know, follows all the Noxes, but if the clues are so sparse and so innocuous, are they like it does it feel yeah. Like a game of, of, you know, tit for tat. Does it feel like we're having a back and forth with the reader or do we feel like the reader is playing a small game and then suddenly being landslid with a, you know, checkmate in four turns? Ultimately, this, this is going to be a really interesting one for review season because I have so many good things to say about this book, but it, it really is like figuring out how best to explain that. I, I feel like that makes it a more memorable book to me. I'm going to have more stories to tell about this book to other people because I'm going to be wrangling with the ideas that it left me. And I really enjoy that in fiction. That's one of my favorite things. Well, that's good. I do love a good wrangle, as they say. I suppose, though, Herds, we should wrap this discussion here because it is time to carry on with our next story. Yes, let's let's move on from this this, this hellish place. And straight into Alex Pavese's Eight Detectives. <gasps> this novel came out in 2020. Another little metafictional stretch oh as we dive further oh. into these modern conundrums. We'll be talking chapters one to five, and we'll see you next week for all of that fun. I'm ready. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3, Death of the Reader, and we're out of here.